As you turn to Luke 1, I want to ask you a question. Um, the question is this, has anything literally taken your breath away? Have you ever had a moment where something's literally taken your breath away? Something you come across is so beautiful and so awe-inspiring and so surprising that it literally stuns you into silence, into worship. Maybe it's a mountain, maybe it's an ocean, maybe it's birth, maybe it's a building. Um, there's one thing that consistently does, there's other things, but one thing that consistently does this for me, um, and it's happened at least three times that I can remember in three different cities in the world where I've been walking toward uh, the center of a city square and I've turned a corner and there's this stunning cathedral with just beautiful spires pointing upward and, and ornate uh, carvings and, and sculptures, some of them kind of creepy, but ornate carvings, carvings and sculptures around the building and these bells starting to toll. Twice it's happened where it's been sunset, which just adds to the beauty. Um, and if you know me, um, I, I'm not all that traditional of a guy, um, and yet I love architecture and I love tradition and history, and so there's just something uh, about these 500-plus-year-old buildings in different parts of the world that just, that just wows me. And then you go inside and see tens of thousands of dollars worth of art, and it's just awe-inspiring. Um, but there's a problem with many cathedrals in many cities across the world, and that's that the original stunning beauty has over time kind of worn off. If, if not physically, then, then at least it's worn off in people's minds. Um, these, these buildings were built to, to show and declare the beauty of God and the glory of God. If you don't know this, the, the reason that the cathedrals have tall spires is to call people's attention heavenward. Uh, the, the bells would, would toll and ring, come and worship. The stained glass and the art inside was a reflection of the creativity and, and scriptural scenes that God gives. But over time, for people in these different cities, that initial awe and wonder just starts to fade. The, the worship kind of turns into just this meh. It just is. It's a building in the center of our city. The bells kind of annoy me because they toll at different hours that I don't like. And, and inside, if you walk in, and some of you have this experience, you walk in, and other than tourists, there's like 12 people in these massive cavernous rooms actually there to worship. The reality is that, well, the reality does not match the rightful awe. The reality of these cathedrals does not match the rightful awe. And I was talking about this with our elders this week, and Andrew Rubinson reminded me that one cathedral, even in this past few months, Notre Dame, caught on fire, and we saw this. And, and, and what you may know, if you followed any of this, is within one and a half days, over a billion dollars had been donated to restore this building. And as one, I think it was a Chicago Tribune article, said that, that, that 1.5, or the, the billion dollars in 1.5 days was raised from, quote, ordinary worshipers. And so there's this thing where this big event happened, and that big event led people to care about this cathedral again. But as far as everyday life, for most people walking by it on their way to work in Paris, there, there is little care for this place of worship, for this ages-old cathedral. And the same article even referred to Notre Dame as a monument, which I think is more telling maybe than, than the writer even knew. And so again, I want to ask you, what is it that takes your breath away? What, what is it that, that has, has literally captivated you? And to that, I want to add a second question. How long does that all last? How long do you stay there before it starts fading? Or like people with cathedrals, does it just become so ordinary over time that it, 
that it doesn't mean anything. Because for us as, as followers of Jesus, for those of who would claim that, we have a great risk of doing that same thing with God all year long. At Christmas, especially, there's a great risk of thinking through Jesus' birth in that same way. Like what, what we're about to read, church, is, is an appearance of an angel of God who gives an amazing message and promise to this lady named Mary and the same promise for all humanity. And, and that should draw a far greater response from us than any cathedral or mountain or ocean or, or any other building or any other baby. But for many of us, the story just becomes so familiar that the reality doesn't match the rightful awe. It's, it's a tradition. It's a Christmas story. We treat Jesus like Parisians treated Notre Dame. Christmas is a big event, and so we remember it. We give our attention to Jesus when this big event rolls around, but, but, but a lot of the year, a lot of our everyday lives, we're just kind of meh. Maybe even in Christmas season, we're kind of meh. But Jesus is so much more, and Christmas is so much more. And so today, I want to invite us to kind of reclaim the rightful awe as we see God's message and miracle of joy, and as we consider the responses of Mary and Elizabeth and John the Baptist. And, and here's my hope today, that I can't do, that you can't conjure up. Here's my hope. Would God give us the same joy this Christmas that he gave to folks at the first Christmas? That's what I hope you would do. Would you pray that he would do that with me? Father, would you give us your joy? We can, we can conjure up happiness, we can conjure up a facade, but we can't conjure up true, deep-seated joy. Only you can give us that. And so would you do that today through our inadequate words, through our thinking, through our conversation, and through your all-sufficient word? Would you give us your joy today? It's in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. All right, so we're going to see the text, the message, and the miracle of joy, and then we're going to look at the responses. So uh, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Again, it's on page 855 of your Bibles, or I think it'll be on the screen behind me. In the sixth month, the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, we talked about that last week, we'll come back to it. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed. Betrothed, there's some confusion on that. It's, it's more than engaged. The, the, the bride, bride price had already been paid, so it was more than a promise, more than an engagement. To break it off would be uh, the equivalent of a divorce today. So there's a, a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying. And she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, which is another name for Israel. He'll reign over the house of Israel forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Yeah, thank you, God. There's so many areas of joyful promise in the angel's words. But, but, but at times, we can miss the greatest message or the greatest promise. 
So, so hear the angel's message. Hear the angel's promises. Mary, you have favor with God. Mary, the Lord is with you. Church, if, if you call yourself in Christ, if you're a follower of the, of the Christ, the Messiah, then, then that same promise is declared over you every single day. You have found favor with God through his son. Because of Jesus, the Lord is with you. There's more promises. Mary, you're going to have a baby. Mary, this baby is going to be great. It's going to be called the son of the most high. Now, Mary's not some famous movie star, rock star. Mary's not blessed in the eyes of the world. But of all the women on earth, Mary's the most honored. She's not worshipped, as in some traditions. She's not a mediator between us and God. She's not supernatural. She's not a savior. But she's highly favored by God. Because this modest woman from this obscure town became the mother of our Lord Jesus. The angel's full of great promises to Mary, to us. The fact that we have favor with God, that's a great promise. The, the, the fact that the Lord is with Mary and is with us, that's, that's a great promise. A, a baby in general is a great promise. But church, none of these are the greatest promise in this text. The greatest promise in these verses is that the baby the angel describes is the Messiah is the coming one, the redeemer of Israel. That's the greatest promise in this text. See, for 4,000 years, Israel had been waiting for a redeemer, waiting for a king, waiting for one who would come and make it right. And God promised to pursue his people. Ever since Adam and Eve, God promised to pursue his people. He promised to crush the head of his enemy, Satan. He promised to fix brokenness and restore um, everything back to, to, to perfection. And God had even told Israel, I'm going to do this through a Messiah. I'm going to send you a Savior. And, and talk to me for a minute. Some of you know this. When, when the Old Testament prophets spoke of the Messiah, what are some of the words that they used to describe him? You know? We haven't done this in a while. If you have anything in your mind. Perfect. What else? Wonderful. Counselor. The Almighty God. He said things like, the prophet said things like, the, the Messiah is going to be the son of the Most High. They said things like, he's going to come from the lineage of David. That he's going to reign over Israel forever. They, they said things like, he's going to be an eternal king. And Mary knew that language because everyone in Israel at the time knew that language. And so look at verse 32 and see the language the angel uses as he promises this baby to this virgin Mary. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. It's the same language. This is the fulfillment of God's promise. Last week, if you were here, we saw the angel promise Zechariah and Elizabeth a miracle baby. But John the Baptist is not the most important baby in Luke chapter one. John the Baptist was a messenger. He was one who would go before and prepare the way for a greater promised baby. The baby in today's verses, promised to a young and betrothed and humble virgin named Mary, that's the greatest baby in Luke chapter one. He 
is the angel of God's promise in this verse. That's what God is promising. Both babies, John and Jesus, are promised. Both are announced by angels, but only one baby is the hope of Israel, the very fulfillment of God's promise. Only one's the Messiah. And for the first century and the 21st century, Jesus is the greatest message of joy. But it's not just the message, it's the miracle that matters. And his birth is this awe-inspiring miracle. Mary's understandably confused by the angel. Last week, if you were here again, you saw Zechariah challenge the angel. He said, give me proof, I need a sign. Help me know that this will happen. And then God graciously gave him a sign. Luke tells us Mary was confused. Mary was troubled. That's an understandable response. But she never challenged the angel. And as a side note, I was looking through this because it struck me. There's, there's a few glimpses of Mary throughout Jesus' birth story and throughout his life. Not many, but, but all the glimpses we see of Mary show her to be a, a pretty steady and reflective woman, a wise woman. When the wise men came, she, she treasured their worship and pondered in her heart the fact that these grown men would bow down. At the, at the cross of Jesus, we see her responding in a wise, thoughtful way. If I was to see an angel, I think I would be terrified. Zechariah saw an angel and he challenged the angel. But Mary saw an angel and her response is to try to discern and figure out what kind of message this angel is bringing. And then the next verse, she asks a very logical question. Look at verse 34 with me. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and because of that, therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word and the angel departed from her. And the angel references last week's miracle. Mary's old and barren Aunt Elizabeth has conceived. And again, church, both then and today, that would be a great enough miracle to show God's promise. It is God alone who opens wombs. Birth, any birth, is a miracle. John the Baptist's conception would be enough to remind us that nothing is impossible with God. But just as we, we just said, John's not the most important baby in Luke 1, neither is his miraculous conception the most important miracle in Luke 1. Every human in all of history, we're not going to go too scientific, don't worry, but every human in all of history is conceived one way. Even though Zechariah and Elizabeth were old, even if folks use science and medical and different techniques today, there is one option. However it needs to play out, there's one male and one female that together make a baby. That's the option. There's three exceptions in all of human history, and it's Adam and Eve and Jesus, who is the second Adam. Jesus' birth was truly and literally impossible. But nothing is impossible with God. And so God the Father crafted and perfectly carried out this plan to create God the Son 
by the power of God the Spirit. Church, what a mystery. It, it again leads us, should lead us, can lead us to awe and wonder and worship. Jesus alone is the Son of God. So Jesus alone is fully called holy. While he was born of a human woman, thus making him fully man, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, thus making him fully God. But, but follow me on this. Just as a Messiah is a better promise than a baby, so also do these verses introduce a, a greater miracle than even Jesus' miraculous conception. Again, Elizabeth and Zechariah are old. John the Baptist's conception is miraculous enough in the eyes of, of, of mankind. Jesus' conception is a greater miracle. But it's through this miraculously conceived baby, the Son of the Most High, that God promises the greatest miracle of all. And that's the salvation of the world. That is the greatest miracle in this text. That is the greatest promise of a Messiah. Jesus didn't just come and teach good things and live as a good example and go, follow me and do what I do by your power. Jesus didn't even just come to be a king. Jesus is the only one who is fully holy. He's the only one who is the Son of God. Jesus is the only one who has the right and ability to save the world and redeem all of God's people. We've seen this throughout history. If you look through the Old Testament, God has always required a blood sacrifice for sin. The wages for sin, the Apostle Paul tells us, is death. And so either we die for our sin or a substitute dies on our behalf. Something has to die. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve tried to cover their sin with a plant, which was insufficient. And so God came and did what they couldn't do, and, and he killed an animal who paid the price, literally gave its very life in order to cover Adam and Eve's shame and allow them to remain in the presence of God. The Old Testament sacrificial system, all through Leviticus and reference through the, the, the law and the prophets, were, were the same thing. They were, they were how to offer substitutions for sin. And so every day, everyone in Israel for 4,000 years, every day for 4,000 years, everyone in Israel was commanded to bring some animal for the priest to kill because every day for 4,000 years, everyone in Israel sinned and was unholy before their God. Every day required death. But even the daily sacrifice for each of those 400 years, for each of those people in Israel church, even that was not enough. Sin and brokenness still won the day in Israel. Sin and brokenness still reigns today. But Jesus the miraculously conceived and angelic promised baby in Mary was finally enough. Thirty-some years later, Jesus' death would be the last death ever needed for sin. God still requires a blood sacrifice for my sin and for your sin. 
The question is, is it going to be your blood or Jesus' blood? Christ alone is the one sacrifice for everyone who believes. Christ alone could cover the guilt and shame and fix all brokenness for all of history. God's true sacrifice had to be perfect and holy to meet God's standard of perfection and holiness. And God's true sacrifice had to be 100% human in order to cover the sins of humanity. Christ alone in all of history is both of those things. There's this old Russian Christmas hymn that translated into English is called Salvation is Created. And it's this beautiful kind of ethereal, airy, it just builds and builds and builds. And, and there's one modern version um, that the entire lyrics say, salvation is created in the midst of us. Salvation is created in the midst of us. And then the whole rest of the song is just this beautiful building repetition of alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. That's the message, and that's the miracle of Christmas. There's a baby, yes. There's a miraculous conception, yes. But there's more than that. There's a Messiah, and there's a salvation being created in the midst of the earth. It's what the angels will call next week good news and glad tidings of great joy for all people. That's the great miracle. That's the great joy. And I, and I wanted us to walk through these verses and, and kind of point out the different promises, the different miracles, in, in order to draw us to this point, because I want each of us to be really honest with ourselves right now and check our gut. What's your honest response to this truth? In full honesty, not what should it be, because we're in a church gathering. Like, what's your honest response to this? Unbelief. Unbelief. That's a very fair response. It's one that I wrote down even. Because the awe wears off. The wonder fades. Thank you for being honest. Today we hear this and we largely respond in one of a few ways. For some of us, maybe we go, it's great, it's amazing, it's joyful, it still draws me into worship. And if that's you, I want to recognize that and say, for some of you, this is, this is an easy thing for you. Joy and praise. Yes, that's the right response, but, but my fear is that that's not nearly all of us. In fact, I think it's a few of us. But to you, if awe and joy in Christ, if, that, if that's a regularly alive thing in you, then man, would you help the rest of us? As a brother and sister in Christ, we need you to guide us into this everyday worship and help us to not lose this all. Because for some of us, there's a second common response, and it, and it is disbelief. Last week, we saw Zechariah challenge the angel and ask him for a sign, which I, I hope you found to be massively ironic, because he's talking to an angel, going, can you give me a sign? And the angel's like, what do you need, Bo? But disbelief is so common, isn't it? More of a win, not an if for many of us. And if that's where you are right now, maybe, maybe Mary herself can be an example for you. 
she found joy and she found faith and she found belief in God's promise. And she was able somehow to trust in God's word. And maybe you go, yeah, 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 but I'm in a really hard time right now. And I would point you to see that Mary was a young, teenage, more than engaged woman who was found to be pregnant. Man, her reputation shot. Massive scandal. There's no way to explain, even, even telling the truth. Who, who's going to believe that? We have a hard enough time believing it today, much less when there's no context for it. At the time, there were two options to what Mary was found to be. One is that Joseph would divorce her, which he almost did, except that an angel came to him. And the other option was that Mary could be killed for adultery. I don't know what we would have going on in us that would be harder than what Mary had going on in her. But church, God kept his promise. God gave Mary a faith in him, and, and the same can be true for us. Mary's faith is just a glimpse and a foreshadow of the faith of, of Jesus, her son, who would also suffer shame and mockery and rejection, and would suffer even more than Mary and would be killed. But like his mom, Jesus' faith in God the Father's perfect promise and perfect plan was greater than any doubt or any temptation. Mary, and even more so Jesus, had great faith in God's promises. And I hope if you're here and going, I'm, I'm disbelieving, I'm hopeful that that would give you hope. Even as you doubt, even as you suffer, would that give you hope that in Jesus there is joy and there is truth? And there's a, re a third response that I think is true for many of us, whether we'd say it out loud or not. And it's, I'm, I'm going to kind of package it as kind of going, it's we respond to this by just kind of going, it's nostalgic. We enter into this story just feeling some sort of nostalgia. Jesus is kind of just a fact. Christmas is, is this historical thing, but, but it's not much, much more. Maybe we believe it is, but in our daily functioning, it just kind of is. Jesus is, is like this, this stunning cathedral, maybe a few times a year we're even in awe at it, but as far as every day, we're mostly just kind of, well, it just is. It's, it's kind of meh. I, I spent a lot of this week in, uh, in Slovakia, uh, which is a country. Um, used to be Czechoslovakia. It's, in, it's part of the Eastern Bloc of, uh, of Eastern Europe. I was, I was there to help serve some, some churches and some church planters. Uh, and my friend, Dawson, who uh, lives there and, and ministers there, he, he wanted me to have the full Slovakian experience, he told me, which I now know involves a public bathhouse with Dawson and two old men in his church. So I don't know what you did Friday night, but I was sitting in a 100-degree mud bath uh, in 20-degree snow drinking Pilsner with uh, four old men and a whole lot of other folks who were speaking Slovak and wearing European swimsuits. Um, mostly in their 60s plus. So that was, there's an image for you. Because <laughs> we were talking, these, these two men were telling us about the first half of their lives that they grew up under communism. And I told them, like, man, like, we, we hear about communism in the States, but it's so distant, it seems so far away, not necessarily for everyone, but in the schools it's taught as this kind of very factual kind of thing. And they're, t they're telling us, they're, they're reliving some of their growing up under, under communism. Neither of the men who were talking about it uh, loved communism, 
But, but it was so interesting to see, like the rest of the conversation, their eyes are engaging and they're, having, they're joking around this kind of stuff. And then they, as they start to talk about their memories of communism, their eyes kind of glaze over and they kind of look off in the distance and kind of down. And they just talk about their lives under communism as just, it, it just is. It just, it just was. It was just a fact. It was just part of their history. And then they kind of snap back and they'd re-engage in lively conversation and this kind of stuff. It was really enthralling to watch. It was kind of this image of like, this was the past. We're going to ignore the past because daily life is what matters. And church, I think so many of us do the same thing with the Christmas story. We hear the promise of a Messiah. We, we hear the miracle of salvation and, and we have a similar response. It's just fact. It's just History, it just was, it's just familiar. There's no awe in it anymore. We, we may even believe the story is real, but most of the year, most of Advent, our daily life is what consumes us. And Christmas becomes more about wrapping gifts or, or wrapping up the work year or school year and, and, and putting together a, a social media-worthy fireplace and tree. And we sing about Jesus and sing, come let us adore him on Sundays. We may read the Christmas story in our homes on Christmas morning. But otherwise, the miracle and joy is lost in the past. And many of us even spend the rest of the year, even Christmas season, as if we're walking by this beautiful cathedral that is Jesus, barely noticing the proverbial spires and bells of his incarnation and the message and miracle of a Messiah and salvation. Is this just me? Is our awe lost? If, if, if that's you this Christmas, if Christmas is so familiar and nostalgic that you miss the awe, or maybe even more, maybe you're just apathetic toward it, then maybe this is the word you need to hear today. For 4,000 years, Israel had been waiting for this promised Messiah. Before Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, before the gospel accounts that start the New Testament, God had been silent for 400 years. The last prophet, Malachi, spoke 400 years before the gospels. Just, just for context, if this was today and we we're looking back 400 years, it's, it's, it's as if God hadn't spoken and there'd been no development in Christianity since the 1600s. Like as if the last development in our faith was before the Taj Mahal was built or 150 years before America was a country. It's a long time. It's a lot of yearning. But first with Zechariah and second with Mary, God broke his centuries of silence. And he broke his centuries of silence with a promise. And his promise is the same as it had been since Genesis. I still have a people and I still pursue that people and I will still send a Messiah to save that people. And then to Mary, he said, I'm going to send that Messiah through you. And it's going to come in the form of a humble, obscure baby. And to us, God's message is that he still pursues and he still redeems and he still keeps that promise. That's the joy of Christmas. That's the message and miracle of this season. And I said today that my prayer is that God would somehow do more than we could do and, 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 and give us the same joy to us, give the same joy to us this season that he gave to folks at his first Christmas. And so I just ask you how you respond to that 
As we wrap up, I want to see how the original hearers of this message and miracle responded. Because, because maybe, maybe God would use their response and their joy to stir something in us if we find ourselves less joyful or more nostalgic or more disbelieving or more doubting. So here's what happened next. Mary went to visit her pregnant aunt Elizabeth, and we see the first ever response to Jesus. Look down with me at verse 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby did what? Leaped in her womb. There's the first response to Jesus. Here's the second response to Jesus, continuing in verse 41. Then Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed Mary, are you among women? And, and blessed, it's even a greater sense, more blessed is the fruit of your womb. Look how Elizabeth describes John's reaction even as an unborn baby, down in verse 44. Behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. John leaps. Elizabeth praises God. This looks like prose in our Bibles, but this is truly a poem, a declaration. She shouts this poem of great blessing because God is fulfilling this promise that Israel's been longing for for 4,000 years. This is, as a side note, one of, one of many times that Luke highlights women in his account. People ask sometimes, who's the first person to believe that Jesus is God? Is it, is it the disciples in, in Acts 2 after the Spirit falls? Is it, is it Peter who says, you're the Christ, the Son of God? Church Elizabeth is the first to call Jesus Lord in a way that is reserved for God. How's that happen? God tells us Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. An angel already promised Zechariah that John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from the womb. We saw that last week. And church, God the Spirit still points you and me toward Jesus. It's what he does. The Holy Spirit created a baby in a virgin. The same Holy Spirit can create joy in our joylessness and create belief in our disbelief, and can create hope in our hopelessness, and can create trust in our fearfulness, and faith in our doubt, and peace in our overwhelmed chaos, and on and on and on. God the Spirit will help you find joy and awe this Christmas. Do you need help with that? Turns out God calls him a helper. It's what he does. Ask for his help and the Holy Spirit will fill you and point you to Jesus and point you to joy. That's John's response. That's Elizabeth's response. But there's one more response in Luke 1, and that's Mary's own. We already saw her reply to the angel, let it be. Let it be. I'm your servant. Let it be according to God's will. That's not resignation. That's faith, that's trust, that's anticipation. But, but there's a second response that's become a famous song throughout the centuries and it's been, been called in Latin the Magnificat. And the Magnificat is Mary's reflection both on God's general promises through all of history and, and on God's specific promises through her. And this, this message, this, this song has, has been shaped into operettas and, and lyrics all throughout. It's been sung across the world both in Christmas and not. And so here's what I want to do as we close. I want to invite, invite us into the history-long reciting of these words. And I'm going to ask you to stand. And I'm going to ask you in a minute, you can stand. I'm going to ask you to, to, to recite these words and, and recite with Mary her response of joy.
Words will be on the screen. It's a poem. We're going to maybe say these words of praise with her. And here's why we're going to do this. It's not a cheesy little exercise. My hope is that in these words, God might give us a faith and the Spirit might help us respond in joy. That no matter how we were walking in, that we might go out being more filled with joy and faith and hope and love and peace. That, that God the Spirit might use our own voices to make this song our song. That he might renew a sense of awe in Jesus. And so together, will you, will you stand if you're able? Will you raise your, raise your hands and praise if you want? The first words are, are, are shouting, magnify the Lord. Mary's rejoicing in her Savior. And I want to give one more disclaimer. No matter what posture you're in, no matter what you feel toward Christmas and toward Jesus, I want to challenge you to join us. If this is a great season, if you're filled with joy and praise and awe and amazement, then joining Mary should be easy for you. Would you help be an example for the rest of us? If you're suffering, though, if you're not believing in God, if you're, if you're not seeing his goodness or his promises, or if you're nostalgic or apathetic, even if you're not sure about Christianity at all, then I want to invite you to try and to try with a full voice. And so let me pray, God, we just read that nothing's impossible for you. And so would you use even the inadequate sound of our own voices as we recount your promises together? God, would you use those things to stir up a faith and praise and trust and awe and amazement in each of us today? as we hear and say the words that your spirit gave Mary so long ago. God, would you breathe new life and redemption and belief through your words? Would you fill us with your spirit and give us the same joy that your message and your miracle gave John and Elizabeth and Mary so long ago at that first Christmas? And now, church, we join Mary, who said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring, forever. Church, this is just as much our promise as it was to Israel's, as it was to Mary's. God, thank you for your promise. Thank you for your servant, Mary. Thank you for an even greater servant in her son, Jesus, your son, Jesus.